Right, well, I'm very happy uh, to speak here today on such an excellent panel, especially considering the amazing work Albausala has done, a team that's been such a boon for us researchers to have those numbers to cite. Um, excellent. Um, I almost feel guilty to talk about Salafi jihadism, having heard from, from such a positive presentation about transparency and whatnot. Um, but it's something that needs to be addressed. It doesn't happen to be the primary focus of my research right now, um, but it's something that I've been looking at over the past few years. Um, I often compare studying Salafi jihadism in Tunisia, or studying the Salafi issue, like studying many other issues in Tunisia, including institutional reform, uh, the composition of certain political parties, etc. It's a little bit like uh, you know, the blind men palpating the elephant. Everyone has, it, has their hand on a different part, but nobody really sees the entire picture. There are two fantastic researchers. You heard from one yesterday, Mikhail Ayari, who has been the principal researcher for International Crisis Group, and also Fabio Morone, who you haven't met, but he's an Italian researcher who's been in Tunisia for the past 11 years. And they've also done a great deal of work on Salafism. Um, so, so together with, with people like this and others, uh, Tunisians and uh, foreigners who have looked at bits and pieces, we all try to read and speak and come together and share. So I'm hoping today what I can offer uh, is a small window of insight into a very messy, very difficult to understand uh, phenomena in Tunisia after it's largely become more visible after the revolution. Just to talk a little bit about what research I've done and issues of access, because these are questions everyone has. Uh, how do you, as a white American woman, have access to uh, you know, young people who would identify as Salafi jihadis? Uh, I'll talk more about what that means later, but firstly, a few brief words about uh, how, how I fell in with this crowd, <laughs> how, I, how I started doing this research. Um, I've been in Tunisia for about one year and six months, but that time has, well, one year and eight months, but that time has mostly been spread over the past three years. I came to Tunisia for the first time in 2007, but after the revolution, I came back to do my master's research. Now I'm working on my doctorate about internal politics in Natha. But during the Manuba, Manuba sit-in, the Munakabet sit-in, that uh, started in November of 2011, I became very curious about uh, not only how Anatha was handling the situation uh, at Manuba and more broadly with the issue of Salafism. That's something that I started looking at in summer of 2011. But I became very interested in who these people were. In English and French language media, we hadn't seen interviews with the young women who started the protests. There were many reports about the situation at Manuba but nobody had really spoken to the, to the young women, at least not in English. So I got curious and wondered if, if I went over there, if I could have some conversations. Um, so I did, and I met the two young women who began that protest, uh, Iman Melki and Fatim ben, uh, ben Mahmoud. Ben Mohammed, sorry. And uh, I met them, and I met the other young women and men there. And after that, I realized that it was much easier than I thought to do this sort of research. Um, so then I began following the issue, um, primarily in Tunis, where I've gone uh, to two neighborhoods a lot, Kabaria and Dawahishia. These are two neighborhoods where a lot of young people who identify as Salafi live, um, but also outside of Tunis as well, outside of Tunis, the capital. 
So um, this is the context in which I've done uh, the research. For about seven and a half months, I have taken weekly Quran lessons with a group of young women who call themselves Salafi Jihadis at a Salafi mosque in Tunis, um, which has given me more insight into Salafi women, in particular uh, Sal young, young Salafi Jihadi women, but also into youth and the politics of Salafi Jihadism more broadly. Um, so from that very limited uh, position on the elephant's body, <laughs> I will attempt to speak about, um, about what I've seen. Um, I'd like to talk firstly about what motivates young people to call themselves Salafi Jihadis and what they mean by that, and talk about uh, the exclusionary factors that push them towards it and the inclusionary factors that pull them towards it. And then I'll talk briefly about the political context and the context of institutional reform more broadly that has colored many of the conversations we have about Salafism uh, in Tunisia after the revolution. As you all know, this has been an incredibly controversial issue. Um, after the revolution began, many people were shocked to see young Tunisians uh, choosing to wear the niqab, choosing to wear long beards, long chamis. Uh, this was radical. This was a radical choice, and many, many Tunisians characterized it as very foreign to Tunisia, something that was not located within the context as a kind of um, Wahhabi tidal wave sweeping in from the Gulf to this country that had been formerly very unified, very progressive. Uh, there was a kind of discourse of almost uh, Jacobin unity under Ben Ali. People were told, you are well-educated, you are secular, you are progressive, you are peaceful, you are, you are Tunisians. And so the revolution was kind of like taking a lid off of that pot. And all of these differences in society that had been percolating before sort of spilled out. Um, in some very surprising ways. Uh, no way was more surprising than the advent of what seemed like a very new phenomenon, Salafi jihadism. This is uh, a phrase that inspires a great deal of fear, confusion, misunderstanding. In the beginning, in 2011, during that summer, when we were just starting to see people dress more visibly as Salafis, we were just starting to hear uh, more vocal protests. For example, in October, when the film Persepolis was shown, there were Salafi protests uh, left on TV. This issue became a lot more visible. And in the beginning, a lot of people conflated Ennatha and the Salafis completely. To talk about one was to talk about the other. There was no difference made between them. And if someone would speak to you about Salafism as something that wasn't necessarily synonymous with Ennatha, that was usually as far as you'd get. To then break it down further and to have conversations about divisions between Salafis themselves, between Salafi Armiya, uh, scripturalist, more quietist Salafis, and Salafiya Jihadiya, more activist, vocal Salafis, etc., and all the blendings between them, uh, kind of points of overlap, points of difference, that did not happen. As we've moved forward over the past three years, you have heard a much more nuanced conversation about Salafism. But I feel like the lexical, uh, there's a lexical minefield that we're always walking on. We're using not only words like Islamism, which are used to encapsulate everything from Professor Tariq Ramadan here at Oxford University sometimes to uh, Al-Qaeda. We're using Salafism, which is an even less 
understood word and it's an even newer word in academic discourse and journalistic discourse, etc. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I often felt like the word Salafism was used as a sort of convenient conceptual wastebasket into which we would toss bearded young men, usually, because accepting uh, young women chose to be active, an active part of Ansar al-Sharia or an active part of the Salafi movement uh, was something that most people haven't been able to wrap their minds around. Um, but we tend to throw bearded young men whom we don't understand into this sort of conceptual dumping ground. That's, that situation has been improving, but still the situation uh, for discussing this issue, for researching this issue, is fraught with all sorts of conceptual challenges. It's very difficult to have an evidence-based discussion. There's a great deal of rumor, there's a great deal of fear, um, and that's very important to acknowledge. Um, so what does Salafi jihadism mean to young people who call themselves Salafi jihadi? What do they mean by jihad? Are they all ready to strap bombs on themselves and, uh, and attack Western institutions or, or uh, you know, the Hotel Africa on Sharia Bourguiba? Um, the answer is no, uh, but it's complicated. <laughs> the, the relationship between endorsement of violence and violent acts and identifying a Salafi jihadi is quite new in Tunisia. For people who have studied uh, jihadism elsewhere and Salafism more historically in other places, what we're seeing in Tunisia is very special because you have young, usually young people uh, of all different ages, but quite disproportionately young and from economically marginalized backgrounds who identify as, as, as Salafi jihadi, but for them this term, jihad, means very vocal da'wah. That's usually what it means very vocal da'wah. They, they protest, um, they don't want to vote in party politics. Uh, some of them voted for Anatha in 2011 because they really believed that it would bring uh, material change economically, that it would really bring a revolution politically, and that it would bring Sharia. It hasn't brought any of those things. So they quickly became very uh, disillusioned with Anatha, and within months of the election, they were uh, regretting that choice to vote and swearing that they would never do it again. I emphasize that this is a minority of people who call themselves Salafi who voted for Anatha. Most of them just simply didn't vote because they already felt uh, not only marginalized from the system, but they felt like the exercise of party politics was impious and pointless. Um, so their, act their activism is, is often very vocal, very loud, very dawa preaching oriented. There have been acts of violence, and that's something very important that, uh, that we need to acknowledge and discuss. There have been multiple attacks on uh, Sufi mausoleums in Tunisia. Um, for many of these young people, uh, Sufi mausoleums, just like young women wearing uh, miniskirts or forms of music they find uh, too secular, are uh, threats to uh, Islam purely practiced. A Sufi mausoleum is seen as an example of bidda, or an unrighteous uh, derivation, deviation, sorry, deviation from, from Islam, purely practiced. Um, but the important uh, thing to remember is that they're not supporting violence as the first means of dealing with problems, usually. A lot of them conceptually endorse violence, especially on a local level, on a personal, property, vigilante-oriented level, but not yet on, on a national level, 
Now, of course, the problem we run into when we discuss this is the problem of the two political assassinations that have happened. Um, I'll get into that more later. Uh, right now, talking about what motivates young people to identify as Salafi jihadi, um, this disillusionment broadly felt by young people across the political uh, spectrum in Tunisia, this feeling of not being listened to, this feeling that Tunisia has a gerontocracy that is systematically excluding them, um, you can see it all over the spectrum. That's reflected when you speak to young Tunisians who call themselves Salafi jihadis. Um, economic marginalization is, is a very big uh, motivation, an exclusionary negative push. Um, but there are also pooling factors that need to be recognized. I think we talk a lot about exclusion, but not as much about what these Salafi communities are offering young people that motivates them to join. Um, I'll, I'll share some anecdotes and hopefully put things in more perspective. Uh, when I've gone to Qabariya and to Dawr Hisher over the past couple of years, um, I have I've seen uh, some very surprising things. Uh, one of which I recently saw was, was were kind of um, ad hoc Salafi socialist collectives that made marriage more affordable. So for example, in Tunisia, getting married is extremely expensive. What I heard from uh, young people in Dawr is that the Salafi community there, or, or the Salafis that they identify with, um, are pooling a lot of their money to make the price of marriage about 900 dinars. That means people who are selling fruits and vegetables in front of mosques, people who are selling Islamic clothing, people who work as little shop vendors formally or informally, many of them are pooling their money together, uh, not only to help each other afford basic goods, but to make things like marriage more affordable. That's a positive pull, especially if you're a young person for whom marriage is unattainable because it's so expensive. There are also feelings of um, real social inclusion that are very important to recognize. In Tunisia, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a lot of Tunisians refer to Salafis as unwashed, jubara, hillbillies. Um, Salafis are very aware of this. Um, they don't feel taken seriously as, uh, as agentive actors in their own right. They feel very looked down upon uh, by lots of segments of society. So in many ways, uh, identification with the Salafi community becomes a shortcut to having meaning in one's life. If you are unemployed, it doesn't matter if you have a master's degree in biology. If you're not teaching as a biology teacher, who are you? You're just another young kid asking for a couple hundred millions to go to the kahwa from your parents. You know? And then you sit there and who are you? Why are you valuable? Um, so, so to identify with this tendency is for many people to feel meaning in their lives. Some of these young people have gone to Syria to fight. This is a minority, I think, of young people who identify with this movement. It's very difficult uh, to get real numbers on this. Um, the number, there are certain numbers coming from uh, the Ministry of Interior. There are certain details that have come from the Ministry of Interior, but it's very difficult to rely on any of the numbers. The number is, is probably in the low thousands um, who have gone to Syria to fight. Why does Syria motivate them? Um, another anecdote. One family I know in Qabariya, they have three sons. One son died on a boat going to Italy. Another son I met at an Ansar Sharia rally, or wasn't actually called an Ansar Sharia rally, but it basically was in December. 
he doesn't call himself Salafi. Like many young people who support Ansar al-Sharia, he doesn't call himself Salafi. He believes it's more uh, revolutionary. He believes it speaks to his interests. Uh, he doesn't feel as marginalized by it as he, as he says he feels by other parties. The other brother in the family is Salafi jihadi. So you have within one family many different forms of, um, of an attempt at escape. You have one person who chose to escape uh, you know, kind of horizontally, a uh, more secular form of escape, going to Italy. And then you have another person who chose an almost more vertical, spiritual form of escape, trying to go uh, to Syria. Young men and young women have aspired to go to Syria. It remains unclear how they're getting money to do so. Most of them are going through Libya. Um, just a couple quick points to bring up that we can speak about more later. Um, there's an, a very important uh, institutional context in which we talk about Salafism, and that has a lot to do with security sector reform. The security sector in Tunisia has not been meaningfully reformed yet. Um, today in Tunisia, you have accusations uh, and, and uh, imprisonments of a number of people who have been criticizing the police. Um, it's a very important sector to reform. We can't have meaningful justice for people who perpetrate any sorts of abuses in Tunisia. That's abuses against a mausoleum or freedom of expression or anything until we have meaningful judicial and security sector reform. Anatha has come under a lot of fire for having talked too much to Salafis. There's the infamous video of Rashid Khanoushi speaking to a group of young Salafis in September 2012 in which he advocates kind of bishwaya bishwaya approach. The young Salafi jihadis I knew found that video incredibly patronizing. They think that Anatha is an old, a party of old people who are part of the establishment and they've been completely co-opted by Americans and, and Europeans. Um, but Anatha had part of the equation right in that political inclusion and education were part of the solution. Anatha was too idealistic in thinking that the solution to the Salafi jihadi problem ran straight through the Zaytuna Mosque. If we can only revive Zaytuna, then we can solve the Salafi problem. But at the same time, they lacked the other half of the equation, which was meaningful reform of the security and judicial sectors. A, criminal violation leading to B, punishment. There are a lot of complex factors uh, involved in that conversation, but um, one thing I do find disturbing is that a great many Tunisians, uh, because of the Salafi problem, have used Salafi uh, violations to legitimize a return to old state security practices. When, over the past few years, when I've asked people in alternative political parties, what would your solution to this issue be that the Troika is not doing? The answers I have been given often look like new permutations, new, new uh, old wine and new bottles. You know. um, and you've seen right now, since the technocratic government of Mehdi Jomar has been appointed, at, uh, at certain levels in the Ministry of Interior, you have people who were part of the old regime, whose salaries were suspended because they, they weren't quite sure what to do with them, have now been reactivated as part of the security structure because the argument is that these people know how to deal with the problem. They have the technical skills to deal with the problem. So we can get, uh, hopefully, more into the efficacy of that and Atha's relationship with the Salafis, et cetera, later. But these are just some brief trends.